Welcome to Echoing Faith Today, a podcast conversation on themes of impact and relevance in the new directory for catechesis from the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of the New Evangelization. I'm Dr. Jem Sullivan, host and faculty in the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University of America. On this podcast, we'll hear from scholars, experts, and those in pastoral ministry. So welcome back, and thank you for taking your place at this table of conversation. What does it mean to say that beauty is a path to God? And what does the new directory for catechesis say about the place of the arts in the church, in catechesis and evangelization, and in the spiritual life? To shed light on these questions, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast the acclaimed poet, Dana Joya. Former chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, Dana Joya is the author of several collections of poetry. He won the 2014 Aiken Taylor Award for Lifetime Achievement in American Poetry. A year later, he was named State Poet Laureate of California. And in 2013, Mr. Joya delivered the 124th commencement address at the Catholic University of America. Dana, we're so grateful you can join in this podcast conversation on the Directory for Catechesis and a warm virtual welcome back to Catholic University. I'll be virtually back there. Well, you know, the Directory for Catechesis published this past June offers several new directions, one of which is a theme that you've written and spoken about on many occasions. Uh, the theme of beauty. So I thought we might begin with the question, what is beauty in human experience? Well, you know, beauty is something that I think almost everyone understands intuitively, but for a variety of reasons, most people can't articulate what that experience is. And in fact, so much of the art world, of the educational world, has uh, you know what is really a kind of of uh, backward view of, of the issue? They not only do they not understand beauty, they don't like the idea of beauty. Uh, now let me give a really simple explanation. I think the easiest way to understand what beauty is is to look on it as an experience. It's an experience that's in four steps. First, you know we find ourselves just suddenly stopping in the middle of our busy existence and noticing something, something that arrests our intelligence. It could be a tree, it could be a person, it could be a painting, uh, it could be an animal. Uh, it, you know, I'll talk mostly about seeing things, but it can be something you hear, it can be something you touch, you smell, you, you, know, you taste. Uh, and so the first thing is that you arrest your uh, attention uh, in a way that's unusual because we're all very busy in our lives. Secondly, we begin to experience pleasure in the presence of this thing. I mean, for example, the other day I opened up the walls of my, my studio. I'm in, so I'm in my studio right now where I, I live with 6,000 books and, uh, uh, and, and about a dozen saints. I think you can see two of them, St. Michael and St. Uh, you know, Dominic on, on either side of me. Um, the, and I opened up the door and there was a flock of quail. Uh, this is the California state bird, but you, 
never see it anymore. It's almost extinct. Uh, you know, I think all the, you know, the coyotes on the house cats have eaten them. But there was a, a flock of quail there and they ran away as, as quail did. And it just filled me with joy. You know, the joy that these birds were there. There was lots of young birds. You know, they had come. I think they were refugees from this big fire that's only a few miles away from me. And I was just in a, in a kind of rapture of joy. And so you go, an arresting of intelligence, an experience of pleasure. And that leads you to the third thing, which is you begin to, in a sense, see something about the nature of reality that you'd either forgotten or you never knew. So in this case is why were they here? And it began, I began to think of the you know, the fires of the people cutting down trees and things like this. And, and I, I had, a, in a sense, a, a weird kind of vision of the local ecology, you know, which brought me this moment of beauty. And then uh, the fourth part of the experience is that it vanishes. Now, it won't vanish as dramatically as these quail, you know, you know ran for the bushes, but, you know, could be, you know, but it, it will essentially, you can't hold onto it. You can experience beauty, but you cannot possess beauty. If you're in, the, you know, in front of a beautiful painting and you look at it and you have this experience, 20 minutes later, the experience begins to fade. Uh, and so, you know, what beauty is, is an, an incredible and powerful universal way of knowing. Uh, what the theologian Jacques Maritain said uh, was that you know, beauty delights the senses by unfolding the mysteries of being. And I think that that's a very Thomistic uh, you know, definition, but I think it's a very beautiful one. Thank you. you know, and that gives us a sense of this sense of encounter, but also that it's elusive. This encounter is elusive. It's uh, ephemeral, if you will. Um, to go back, I mean, we can we, you know, we can buy pleasures. Uh, you know, you can buy a candy bar, you can buy a coke, uh, but you can't buy beauty. You know, beauty is something that comes to you on its own, or it doesn't come. We can go to beautiful places. We can put ourselves in the presence of beauty, and well, we'll talk about the theological uh, nature of beauty in a second. I was trying to give a very uh, secular definition, experiential secular definition, although you notice I slipped St. Thomas in at the end. That's right. Um, and that really gives us a good foundation then it, when in terms of looking at the theological. You know, going back to the directory for catechesis, uh, in chapter two it identifies seven sources of catechesis, and one of them is beauty. Why is the naming of beauty as a source for the church's catechetical and evangelizing efforts significant as we see it in this document? You know, I think that beauty is one of the most powerful ways that we know and love God. Uh, you know, and, and I don't know if I fully appreciated that until about 25 years ago when I left New York and I moved into the country, you know, in a rural area in Northern California, up in the, the wine country. And suddenly, for most of the day, I was alone with the beauty of the world, the beauty of the summer, you know, of its intense heat, the beauty of violent storms, the beauty of the gentle spring. And you realize that you are living in something 
that is a creation beyond your control, beyond your understanding. And the beautiful things in it suddenly give you a vision of how one little piece of it starts. Now, I was, I went to 12 years of Catholic school, 10 of them sort of pre-Vatican, two kind of, uh, while, the, you know, while the, all the Vatican controversies were raging. And I had a very old fashioned Catholic education of catechesis, church history, biblical history. And when I went to high school, systematic theology. It was a wonderful education. Uh, but most of my schoolmates left the church. Uh, now, they did, if you ask them why they leave the church, they'll give you a reason. But that's not the reason. Uh, it wasn't the theological argument, it wasn't an ideological argument. Somehow, whatever the church was bringing them no longer fed their spirits. And I think that the main thing that they miss in the church, in the, in the architecture of the church, in the ritual, in the music, and everything, is beauty. You know, is the sense of, of coming into this, the, the rituals, the sacraments, the sacred spaces, and experiencing a kind of supernal beauty unlike anything that they can get outside the door. You know, I think back on this, I love, you know, I'm an intellectual, so I love the, you know, all the theological argumentation. But what speaks to me, you know, are, are the great hymns that I sang. You know, it's the sense as a little boy in a very ugly, uh, rundown part of Los Angeles, I would walk into the doors of St. Joseph's Church in Hawthorne, and it was a, a space that was different from every other space in my life. And it let me know without words, without argumentation, without any theology. I mean, theology is embedded in the architecture, but, but I didn't know that. Without any of those intellectual things that let me know that something was going to happen to me in this space that was less likely to, for me to happen on Hawthorne Boulevard, you know, or in the drugstore or in the supermarket. And I think that we've lost that way of speaking to people uh, beyond concept, beyond argumentation, experientially with the glory of God and our own humble place within creation. I think that's the basis of faith. Absolutely. And that's really the challenge that I think as the church begins to look at this question, at least in this new directory, uh, is to not only understand its importance, but that it really is a vital part of engaging people as they come into whatever, whether it's the liturgy of the Eucharist, um, whether it's catechesis, evangelization, uh, however the, the, a person touches the church, beauty should be part of that experience. Um, well, the Catholic Church has become too utilitarian. And I understand this. I mean, you know, I look at my, my rector, he's not a pastor because it's, you know, it's, it's in the cathedral. My rector, he's worried about keeping the school bills paid, keeping the church, you know, making sure the enrollment is here, making sure that Catholic charities is being handled. He has all of these very practical concerns that consume most of his time. Uh, and I think what's happened on a gr grand scale for the Catholic Church in America, which is the largest charitable institution in America, we've become too much like secular society. We've lost touch with our mysteries. Uh, we've lost touch with the notion that beauty is one of the way that God speaks to us in the world. 
So when we go back to the directory for catechesis, it says that in the church, all beauty is concentrated in the person of Jesus Christ, whose gospel is captivating, the document says, because it is news that is beautiful, good, joyful, and full of hope. The document goes on to say that Jesus speaks beautiful words and performs beautiful actions, healing, setting free, accompanying humanity, touching its wounds. How should we understand this way of speaking of Jesus's words and actions in the gospels as beautiful? Well, let me respond as a writer. Okay. Uh, you know, I hear the you know, Catholics say, well, I don't really understand poetry. I don't really like poetry. I don't know how it works, you know. And literature, you know, that's kind of frou-frou-y. You know, it's, you know, it doesn't have to do, you know. And once again, they, they it, because Catholics are so well-trained at places like Catholic University in theology, in argumentation, you know, in, uh, in Aristotelian thinking. But when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't uh, talk about the theological uh, con concepts. He presented his theology in stories, in poems, uh, in memorable sayings. I mean, the Beatitudes are somewhere a kind of poetic wisdom literature. And as you said, he performed beautiful actions. His life. Uh, you know, a story creates a beautiful arc of redemptive tragedy, of, you know, of the, of the person who takes on the sins of the world, is suffers them, is killed in expiation of them, and is resurrected. So, you, you know, the reason that Christianity spread uh, in, uh, was a huge religion you know, essentially for centuries before what we think of as Catholic theology, you know, was built. People heard the sayings of Jesus. They heard the story of Jesus. They heard the parables. Uh, and so Jesus himself realized that if you're going to talk to the majority of people, you do it as it were through art. You do it through beauty. You do it by embodying those things. Because, I mean, once again, what brought me back to the church. I never left the church. I just sort of, I became lax. I became, you know, a passive, sometimes Catholic, was rereading the parables. The parables arrested my attention. They gave me joy. They gave me an insight, you know, into things. And then it would start to slip away. So I need another parable. I, I need another gospel. I need more, you know, more study because I wanted to keep that sense of joy that the gospels embody. So, you know, when people talk about, oh, can I read a book on ca the Catholic Church? And this, I, I said, read the parable of the prodigal son. Read the parable of the sower. Read the parable of the unfaithful servant. These things will speak to you in a single page with all of the mysteries and power of Christianity. You know, in one sense, um, you're so right. The parables are like Jesus is painting with words, right? He's painting these masterpieces with words. And uh, there's, of course, theology in them, in those parables, but it's vision, it's imagery. It's like the image of the father running out to, to greet his prodigal son. That's God. And so through that imagery, very, very um, sort of poignant imagery, one is brought into the very mystery of God. Well, you know, I've known the, the, the parable of the prodigal son since, I mean, it, since I was six or seven, I mean, since I, you know, 
And when I was a kid, I knew exactly what it was about. It was about a bad kid. <laughs> you know, when I got to be a parent, I realized it was about a good father. But then as I got older and my own family, you know, uh, history got very complicated, I realized it's about a bad brother. You know, it's about, a, you know, and, and then I, but then what you realize, it's about all of those things. You know, a story can embody a multidimensional truth in the same way that Jesus's actions can embody a truth that you can't really paraphrase, you know, and the, the moral of this is that, the moral of the crucifixion is that. No, it is a thing that you spend your lifetime meditating and the crucifixion never runs out of meanings. The resurrection never runs out of meanings. And so, you know, that's what I think, you know, is that the power of these things were and the wisdom of Jesus. Now, I want to say something, Jim, because I don't, sounds like I'm, I'm beating up on theology. I love theology. I've got a whole wall of theological books there. But theology is what we read after we've come to God to figure out you know, what really went on. You know, what brings us, uh, brings us to, to, to Christ, what brings us to God uh, are things which are beyond words, uh, which are words, you know, are insufficient to describe. You know, it's, it's emotional, it's, it's imaginative, it's intuitive, it's about, uh, it's about beauty, it's about reflection, and then theology helps us make sense of it, helps us resolve complicated uh, contradictions we see in our own, uh, you know, in our own personality or in our own lives. So, exactly you know, three cheers, for, yeah, three cheers for theology, but let's start with the words of Christ and the beauties they embody. And that's exactly, I think, what this document is asking us to think about, that catechesis and evangelization is, is meant to help people in those early initial steps of coming to, to this encounter, but through beauty. Uh, the directory also says that every form of catechesis ought to attend to the way of beauty, the via pulchritudinis, since all beauty can be a path that leads to an encounter with God. Explore with us what it means to say that beauty is a path to encounter God. You've already spoken about it a little bit, uh, but what does well, it mean to say that? Let, you know, let's talk about how beauty is embodied in people. You know, that I think many conversions happen. Uh, I've had one or two people uh, who were so lost that even I was able to help them, you know, uh, you know, and what they, what they, what they told me is they said, well, you know, this was in Washington, DC. They said, you know, in Washington, everybody was, was dishonest. Everybody lied, you know, uh, people didn't, you know, and you were different and I couldn't figure out why you were different. And then I realized it was because you were a Catholic, uh, you know, and I had a little group when I was at the National Endowment for the Arts. I had a small group of people, and we would go to mass together on Holy Days of Obligation. We'd have lunch afterwards, and we'd invite other people to come along. And you know, and and I and I think that when you have people who are living the gospel, and I don't put, I do not offer myself as a good example. I'm a I'm a sinner and a pilgrim, uh, but you know, the sisters. Uh, that educated me. There's, some, there's a new order of sisters in Santa Rosa, the Marian sisters of, uh, you know, of Santa Rosa. 
they are people whose very lives are beautiful. And when you are in their presence, you say, how can I get some more of this? How can I get some of the grace that they are obviously living in? And, and so I think that in catechesis, we need to begin with ourselves. Uh, are we leading a life that's full of, of goodness, of grace? Uh, and is that something that we dare offer anyone else? You know, I don't want to, you know, as a poet, I probably do offer people my confusions, you know, my agonies, my emotions. But, you know, but what we really need to do is, in a sense, you know, start off with the sense that what we're doing is to, is to ask somebody to change the nature of their life. If you accept Christ into your life, it changes everything. And I think that, that we have to embody what is positive about those changes. We have to love, we have to love our enemies. We have to be charitable, we have to be patient, we have to be kind, which doesn't mean that we have to be wishy-washy, but you know, those are, uh, I think, necessary things because I learned as a teacher that I'm teaching two things. The first thing is whatever the, the course is, you know, it's, it's poetry, it's, you know, it's music and song. But the other thing I'm teaching always simultaneously is myself as a possible role model. Because young people look at the teacher and say, is that a life that I would like to lead? Does this person's life seem so uh, positive that I want to take this part of knowledge from them? And if they can make the human transaction, they will make the intellectual transaction. And I think for catechesis, it's that squared. Uh, you know, we have to come uh, with the witness of our own lives uh, that we you know, that we want to share with other people, and they should want to share it before we even tell them about it. They should say, "What does what has Jim got that I want?" And you know, the theme of witness is something that permeates the entire directory. Uh, in a sense, what you're saying is that the catechist has to be kind of a living catechism uh, so that the words on the page now come to life in, in the, the life of a person, the whole story, with all of its you know, failings and weaknesses, but the whole person is evangelizing, is catechizing, um, and not just words. So many, I've got two young sons, you know, two sons, young adult sons, and I've been teaching the last 10 years. I just retired from, or I quit USC about a year ago because I want to write full time. But most young people in the United States are unhappy. They feel isolated. They feel disconnected from the values of society. They feel disconnected from uh, themselves, from other people. They have, most of them do not have positive or any romantic connections that are, you know, in a sense that are building their lives. And they're, they're busy, they're, you know, they're opinionated, but they, they, there's a kind of nihilism that's permeating our society. These people uh, are hungry for the kind of meaning that the church provides. But the church has lost its ability to, to talk to them. And I think trying to talk to them uh, conceptually rather than experientially. Because what we're taking them is from one experience of life into another experience of life. And that begins in a sense with ourselves. 
you know, if we do not embody the benefits of, of, the, of the, the way that we've adopted, what do we have? We got a bunch of ideas. You know, you know, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, with their little, you know, their little pamphlets, and here's the seven thing, you know. No, it isn't. It's about, it's about the joy uh, and the meaning. I mean, I'll tell you the, the thing that I like the most about being Catholic. You know, it's not the Eucharist. It's not all this stuff. I mean, as wonderful as they are, it's the fact that every moment of my life has meaning. You know, because you know, I'm going through my pilgrimage on earth and God wants every action, every moment, every thought I have in a sense to uh, do the right thing, to, in a sense to glorify his existence, to be within his, his laws. And doing that both makes me know that my life is important. This quietest moment of my life, the quietest, the loneliest moment of my life has meaning. Uh, and the, th the things that I, uh, that I, I uh, experience give me joy. And so it's, you know, everything else is, is just part of that. Uh, you know, and I think that's exactly what most, if I can, I'm, an, I'm 69 years old, what most kids, you know, which is, means anybody under 35, most kids don't have. They don't feel their lives are meaningful. They don't find joy in their lives. Uh, and so, you know, for me, give, fasting gives me joy. Uh, you know, the, all of the, you know, the, you know, the, the uh, what's the word I'm reaching for? You know, the disciplines give me joy. Uh, the sacraments give me joy. When I was younger, I, I hated going to church. You know, now I'm in church and it's, I go, yeah, you know, and, and I feel part of this community of people who share their love of Christ. You Although know, now I have to do it virtually. Yes, yes. Uh, but that leads so well, uh, really, into the next sort of thought is that, you know, in chapter seven of the directory, uh, they focus on what they call the language of art. Um, and it cites a famous saying, if a pagan asks you, show me your faith, you will take him to a church and bring him before the sacred icons. What happens when the church begins to speak in the language of art, whether it's in preaching and catechesis and education, evangelization, what, what will happen? Well, the experience is different. I mean, let, let me begin with the bad news. You know, because of that utilitarian orientation, most of our contemporary churches are ugly. They make a, a spiritual transaction more difficult rather than less difficult. Most of our contemporary art is quite awful. Uh, you know, uh, I remember once somebody's telling me about the, at USC, they built a spectacularly beautiful little church. I mean, it's so, so perfect in every way. And uh, when they were doing it, they said, well, this, you know, the one you know, person who was doing it says they liked any piece of art as long as it came out of a catalog, you know? And so, but what they did instead is they spent a fortune with the stained glass and things like that. When people come into that, it speaks to, you don't have to, you don't have to talk to them about the, the theology of beauty. They experience it. And in the back, there's you know, it's even beautiful paintings of all the doctors of the church. Now, I've known a lot of people who have become Catholics because they were in France. They went into one of these great cathedrals and they had an experience which they did not understand. 
And then they would, it happened again in another cathedral. And then they would come back and say, why did this happen? You know, and then they would sort of puzzle it and step by step, it led them into the church. Uh, we need to create that kind of experience in the American Catholic Church. It does not exist in, I don't know, 90% of the parishes. I really, you know, I really believe that I tra travel a lot, and I, so I go to mass all over. Uh, we need to embody it in our music. Uh, and I see progress being made, but we've got, you know, a century of, of not-so-hot churches uh, you know, that we have to compensate for. And so I think in the catechesis, we have to f find, a, you know, the, in, in the early church, the art was the most beautiful art that the society could possibly make. You know, and so someone would have the experience in a church almost that we have in the Louvre, you know, that, that there was a, an aesthetic as well as a spiritual transaction that was happening simultaneously. And, uh, you know, and so anyway, I, you know, it's, I think every parish has to figure that out for themselves, but, the, but it's very simple. You have to take it seriously, or you have to accept that your congregation will dwindle. Uh, you know, and so I, and I just do not see the, the number of young people going to mass that we should see. They go as long as their parents take them but they, they don't come back because somehow we're not providing, uh, you know, not in the walls of our theological libraries, but in, in the, the, the sacraments themselves, we're not providing, you know, what uh, it is that they need. So, you know, it's, uh, and, and I think beauty is, is really at the core of this. And the language that we speak, you know, this, you know, most sermons, no one goes to the Catholic church for a sermon. You know, I mean, there's maybe a couple of parishes, I mean, you know, that's the case. But in general, the sermon is something you sit through because it, it's edifying. But it, it, it wouldn't be the thing that would bring you to God or that would, that would, you know, reignite your faith. And so, you know, I think that the words we use are part of what should be beautiful and powerful. Uh, you know, instead, we, we preach kind of abstract, moral, religious obligation. So I don't know. I don't mean to be negative. I do not mean to be negative because uh, the Catholic Church is is at the center of my existence. It's it's a glory. It's a way of looking at the world uh, that I would be lost without. I just it breaks my heart that we've lost our ability to speak powerfully to the world, and that's really what this what catechesis is about. I mean, part of it to bring. Catholics who have left back to the church, but also just to speak to the millions, hundreds of millions of people who are lost. You know, and you're not being negative. In fact, you're being a realist because this is the real pastoral situation. We have the growing disaffiliation of Catholics leaving the church, uh, but particularly among the young. Uh, and this is a question for all of us in, in the church, um, catechesis, evangelization, uh, and and why, why is it that we have these growing number of disaffiliation? Obviously, there's not one reason. There's multiple reasons for it. But I think you've really hit on something here in terms well, of me, what people experience when they do come to faith formation or to the church. Well, let, let me say something else. And this is I, this will offend some people. I don't think it'll offend you. If we're going to revitalize the American Catholic Church, it's not going to happen from the clergy. They're just, they're overworked, they're overcommitted, they're stressed out. It's gonna be from the laity. The laity 
have to take the responsibility in a sense of, of bringing God's uh, words to, you know, to, to people. So the laity have to take this as part of, of, their, of their, their life mission. And so, you know, as a poet, uh, you know, I try to do this in the literary and arts, artistic world. I mean, which are, talk about lost souls, good God. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, but everybody in their own frame. You know, my wife, uh, you know, works with the homeless and Catholic charity, you know, as a volunteer, not as a professional, but she's, it's almost a full-time job for her. Uh, and we need to do this. We need to act out our faith because, you know, once again, it's America. America believes in professionalism. Well, the pr that's the priest's job. That's the sister's job. No, it's all of our jobs, you know? Uh, you, know God, you know, I don't see in the, you know, in the Gospels that, you know, that, you know, that, that only the ordained clergy, you know, have <laughs> a responsibility to bring the good news. Absolutely. You know, and then continuing this theme, if I may ask you a question as an artist, as a poet, uh, continuing the theme of the vital place of the arts in catechesis, the document says this, art can have the merit of opening the person to the language of the senses, helping him to remain not only a spectator of the work of art, but to join in the performance. What does that mean to you as a poet? Well, you know, we have, if you talk to people about, you know, why they do something or, you know, you know, what's, you know, what they believe in, you, you, that you participate in a fiction. Uh, most people want to convince you that they think about things and act rationally in a consistent way across their lives. Now, maybe some people are like this, but by and large, I think for 23 hours and 45 minutes of every day, we don't act at all reasonably. We just exist. And then sometimes we'll think about things. Most of the, of the time, nearly all of us deal with the world in an intuitive, reflexive, reflex, not reflect, reflexive, like reflexes, reflexive, uh, experiential way. We go through life holistically. If we're in a room and it smells bad, you know, we feel bad. You know, if we had, a, you know, if we had a bad, if we're hungry, we look at the world differently than if we did, if we just had a, you know, a, a big meal. And so we are, we are lost in our senses. We're lost in our memories, our imagination, our hungers, and things like this. Then we get into some kind of, you know, of a dilemma. I don't mean a big dilemma, but, you know, Where's the door? You know, uh, you know, we have to think for a moment, you know, and, and find it. And so all I'm saying is that's not bad. I'm not criticizing people. That's how God made us. Or if you don't believe in God, that's how nature made us. We are holistic, experiential, intuitive creatures. Uh, so if you're going to speak to us, you got to start there. You know, that's why the smell of the incense may uh, hit us more than the sermon does. You know, that's why, you know, the, you know, you know the, the, the sound of the choir, you know, may mean more to us than all the theology. And so we are sensuous, experiential creatures, which means that all communication has to begin there. Now, I say that because I didn't know that. I'm a very intellectual guy. I want to talk about ideas. You know, I go right to this, but that's not how you do it. You know, you, I've had to, 
as an adult, re-educate myself, which is you begin with the emotions. You begin with the, I mean, physically, the way you put your body, the way physically you deal with somebody uh, communicates much more than your words do. The, you know, the, the, the courtesies you offer, the attention you offer. And so, and so it's very hard, you know, so one of the problems with, with me training for catechesis is that they train you in ideas, uh, in argumentation, you know, uh, you know, in, you know, in logical, you know, thoughts and, you know, in the larger systems. But in order for that to work, you've got to begin with people that are not even thinking at the moment, you know, you know, so it's a, you know, it's because that's how God made us. You know, if you don't like it, talk to God, uh, you know, because he did not make us all to be theologians. You know, he, he made us creatures who could live in the garden of Eden, which we then screwed up. And so now we don't even have our natural habitat. We are fallen souls in a fallen world, but we're still made in a sense for that kind of experiential, you know, life of the senses and the emotions. Absolutely. And that's hopefully what um, uh, catechists and evangelists can also begin to start doing then is inviting people into that, that experience of God. Um, as we conclude, Dana, would you mind sharing a poem with our listeners? Um, yeah, I'll, I'm going to read the first poem in the book or the last poem in the book. I'm not sure wh you know, which. This is, I'll read the, this is a poem I wrote when I was a very young man. Uh, and uh, I never read it in public, so I, I probably won't read it very well. Uh, it's called The Burning Ladder. And it's about Jacob. You know, when, you know the, the story of Jacob, uh, you, know, you know, seeing the vision of the ladder, you know, to heaven. And it, it occurred to me is that, you know, he never goes up there. He just sees it. And so I use this as a, as a poem about, about the imagine, about faith, the imagination of yearning. Jacob never climbed the ladder burning in his dreams. Sleep held him like a stone in the dust. And when he should have risen like a flame to join that choir, he was sick of traveling and closed his eyes to the seraphim ascending, unconscious of the impossible distances between each step. Missed them mount their brilliant ladder, slowly disappearing into the scattered light between the stars. Slept through it all, a stone upon a stone pillow. Gravity always greater than desire. Very Catholic poem, I think. Uh, you know, it's about spiritual longing and our own imperfections, but it does have a vision of heaven. Thank you so much. And that's the perfect place to wrap up our conversation with the vision of heaven. Uh, as we speak, as we've been speaking about beauty and uh, the need to really recover the vital place of beauty in the life of the church. So Dana, thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your insights on this theme of beauty. You've given us a lot to think about as we reflect on the arts in the church's life today. Um, all the best for your um, writing. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, th thank you for bringing me into this important conversation. It's been uh, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us in this conversation with Dana Joya. Tune in next week as we continue our discussion on the Directory for Catechesis. Till then, keep the faith and keep echoing the faith. I'm Dr. Jem Sullivan, and I hope you have a blessed day.